let's go ahead and jump into our final part of our uh, series. Uh, if we can go to the next slide, Jaylene. Um, so if you guys live in L.A., um, or if you're a fan of sports in general, and particularly in the NBA, everyone knows Kobe Bryant. Um, Kobe Bryant uh, is a, a legendary player uh, and a person, uh, for that matters. And as you guys know, uh, I have a huge bias for like Seattle-based teams or anything Seattle. So I have a tendency not to really care about anything else outside of Seattle. Um, but I still have a lot of respect uh, for players that have cemented kind of their legacy in sports history. And Kobe Bryant is definitely one of those players. Now, I remember when I grew up as a kid in Alaska, um, I used to play a lot of basketball with just random kids in the park and whatnot. But uh, I always remember when Kobe was starting to kind of make his his uh, claim to fame and kind of cementing his his uh, legacy as a Hall of Famer. Uh, people were saying stuff like, oh, Kobe is the greatest of all time. He's the GOAT. And I always remember hearing those things and thinking like, dude, like there's my like, wh why? Why is everyone like saying Kobe is better than MJ or uh, these other legends of great? And I wasn't really a fan of this guy. I thought he was a little arrogant. And I just thought like, dude, this guy is a little full of himself. Like, I'm not really a fan of Kobe Bryant. Um, but earlier this year, as many of you guys know, he passed away tragically in a helicopter uh, crash and the world was completely in shock. And I remember that morning when I woke up, I was eating breakfast with a friend, actually, uh, and we were seeing these articles and news reports on the news and on my phone. And people were posting things on their Instagrams or Facebooks, and it was just getting out of control. Oh, has Kobe Bryant really passed away? Like, did he really like, die in that helicopter crash? And I remember seeing articles, comments, pictures uh, from people all around the world that were sharing their gratitude, their thanks, and their condolences to the Bryant family and uh, for the loss of Kobe and the other people in that helicopter. And I think especially for the fact that we live here in Southern California, I think the impact was even more profound, right? People gathering at the Staples Center and traffic, like unbelievable traffic. I was actually out in L.A. that day and the traffic was ridiculous. There was people everywhere trying to get to the Staples Center uh, to pay their respect and their tribute to him. Now, uh, I remember that week when it happened. If I remember correctly, it happened towards the beginning of the week. And I was thinking, do I need to change my sermon to relate or talk about Kobe Bryant? Because everyone was doing it. Everyone was talking about Kobe Bryant. And I was thinking like, oh, do I need to do that too? Uh, but the thing is, is I wasn't really familiar with Kobe. Uh, I wasn't really familiar with kind of his legacy. I just knew about him. I heard about him as I was growing up. So I didn't really think too much about Kobe Bryant. Um, and so I didn't actually want to misrepresent him or his family or who he was as a person. So I didn't rewrite my sermon, but also it was because um, I didn't really want to uh, uh, change everything that I had planned just because somebody had passed away. But anyways, regardless of that, uh, ever since his passing, uh, I've taken, taken the time to intentionally kind of look at his life, his philosophy, his mentality, and just who he was as a person, the legacy that he had left behind in light of today's message. Now, I'm sure that uh, if you are a Lakers fan or if you are a Kobe Bryant fan or if you are a huge uh, sports fan, I most likely will not do justice in uh, sharing about his life and talking about the things of him. Um, and I'm not the biggest basketball fan, so that kind of reflects. But one of the things that I noticed as I studied and kind of looked at the life of Kobe Bryant and was kind of pulling apart at his, um, uh, his career was his work ethic. 
I, I was totally surprised and very inspired by his work ethic. He has a book that he wrote. He's done many things, but one of the things that he has done was he wrote a book uh, called The Mamba Mentality. Uh, and basically, it looks at his career, it looks at his personal life, um, and it looks at the legacy that he left behind on the basketball court. Now, this keep in mind, he wrote this when he was still alive. Uh, but for Kobe, uh, the Mamba Mentality for him was more than just basketball. He told Amazon Book Review that the Mamba mentality is all about focusing on the process and trusting in the hard work when it matters most. It's the ultimate mantra for the competitive spirit. It started just as a hashtag that came to me one day, and it's grown into something athletes, even non-athletes, embrace as a mindset. In other words, for Kobe Bryant, the Mamba mentality is a constant quest to be the best version of oneself. Okay? Now, I actually purchased this book online because I was curious. I wanted to see what was going on through his head. I wanted to kind of pry a little bit at uh, his life and, and the things that he did, what the Mamba mentality was really all about. And as I look through the book, you'll see how meticulous, how detail-oriented, how focused and how determined this man was, even when he started his career at the age of 17. For example, one of his mentalities when it came to working out was that he would start his day early because the logic was, if I start my day early, I can fit in more workouts. So typically, he would work out for a few hours and then he would take four-hour uh, gaps of rest in between. And he consistently kept this throughout his entire 20-year career as an LA Laker. And he would um, start his days at four or five o'clock in the morning, work out for two hours, take the kids to school, uh, and work out again, and then take and do all their errands four hours, then work out again. And he would do that all the time. And he would say that uh, for him, uh, he would work out so much that he would sacrifice even sleep, that he would rather sacrifice sleep than family time uh, to work out and to master his craft. And so to see that, I mean, I, for me, myself, just starting to work out now, uh, there's no way I can work out that much, that many hours in a day. And I'm sure many of you would also feel the same way. But one of the things as I was looking through his book and looking at this very unconventional style of how he uh, tells this story, um, it's interesting because the Mamba mentality uh, is only possible because of people. Now, what I mean by that is that if you look through the book, what he does is, is he analyzes uh, person after person. And he mentions these different people from the beginning of his career to the end of his career. And he introduces uh, these people as important to who he has become as a player now and as a person. People like Ju uh, Judy Keto, um, which was Kobe Bryant's physical therapist from the very beginning of his career to the end, had a huge role in the recovery process for any of his injuries and post-game, like everything, right? It even got to the point where this person would go with him on family vacations to help him recover and to stay in tip-top shape. Gary Vitti was a trainer that he worked with that was uh, very crafty in how he would do the tape on his fingers and his ankles, right? Uh, Barron's Betos was just Kobe Bryant's uh, neuromuscular therapist was critical to his recovery post games, right? And the list goes on and on. He talks about people like Magic Johnson, Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell, Luke Walton, Allen Iverson, Tim D uh, Duncan, Chris Paul, D Wade, C Kevin Durant, like all these people, these people, current pre uh, players and past le legends, okay? 
coaches, teammates, even the referees, right? All of these people are what made Kobe Bryant Kobe. All of these people are what contributed to the Mamba mentality. Now, I think it's truly fascinating. For any of you young guys out there that are interested in Kobe Bryant or wanting to know more, and you want to just look and probe through the life of Kobe, this book was fascinating, right? To see how all these different people shaped his character, his career, his mentality, and the legacy that he ultimately left behind. And I don't know about you, but for me, like the behind the scenes is always more interesting to me than the final result, right? Yeah, Kobe, the legacy, we can look at his stats and his career. But for me, what's more interesting than that is the legacy and the process that he went on to get to that point. He says this quote in the book, if we look at the next slide, he uh, says this. He says, the mindset isn't about seeking a result. It's more about the process of getting to that result. It's about the journey and the approach. It's a way of life. I do think that it's important in all endeavors to have that mentality. You see, when it comes to the journey of Kobe Bryant, he wasn't alone, but rather he was there with a team of people that surrounded him, which took him and carried him on this journey. So today, with that in mind, we're going to be kind of talking about this ideal of teamwork. And, you know, if you think about it, like with Kobe Bryant for, as a prime example, when you see an athlete, very rarely do they do things alone, right? Even if the sport is like a single person, so like a golfer or someone that plays maybe singles in tennis, right? There are many different people that are part of the process to help that player, right? That athlete. There are coaches, trainers, nutritionists, therapists. The list can go on and on and on. So teamwork becomes so important to the overall performance of an athlete. And even more so, team competitions, right? Things like soccer, volleyball, football, and many other, even basketball, right? A lot of the time, a team's success is determined by the level of teamwork that they're able to produce. So in the same way, we as followers of Jesus Christ have a race that's been set out before us. And as we work with those around us, to further God's or Jesus' second coming and the gospel message, it's the teamwork that we have that enhances the performance as we run on this race. So with that, let's read Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12, and we're going to break down um, this passage or this section of Ecclesiastes. It says, two are better than one because they have good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a thresh or threefold cord is not quickly broken. So, when we read the book of Ecclesiastes, there are a lot. I mean, a lot of different things that we can pull away from uh, this book. A while back, uh, the beginning of this year, or maybe towards the end of the year, actually, uh, we did a, a few Friday Vespers, and I did a few studies talking about the themes that we find in Ecclesiastes. The biggest takeaway, and probably by far the biggest thing that people remember, is that everything is meaningless. And uh, any of you guys, younger people, remember uh, what meaningless is in the Hebrew? I'd be very surprised if somebody remembers this. Does anyone remember? 
Maybe somebody's going to Google it. Okay, does anyone remember? Meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Everything is... Havel, okay, or it's better translated as everything is like a vapor, right? It's like there and you try grabbing it, but it's not there, okay? Um, so meaningless is probably not the best translation, but uh, that's kind of the biggest theme that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. But if you remember, uh, or what's interesting about Ecclesiastes chapter 4, um, and if you look at verse 9, okay, you'll find that he's talking about every, how everything under the sun um, is meaningless, but particularly everything under the sun alone is meaningless. I'm sorry, when you look at chap uh, verses 8, like so before this. Um, but then uh, we find in this section, in chapter or verses 9 to 12, we find the book of Ecclesiastes kind of reinforcing this idea that two is better than one. And then he continues to break down and give reason for why this is the case. But what we find here the book of Ecclesiastes is doing is he's kind of creating this strategy, right? And many actually Old Testament writers use this strategy to kind of prove a point. And what they would do is that they would compare one thing to another. For example, uh, let's go to the next slide. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, uh, so Samuel said, has the Lord... Uh, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. You see, what Samuel was trying to say and what he was trying to prove a point was, is he's saying that loving God is more important than simply going through the motions. So you see, they compare. Oh, does, would God rather have this or would God rather have that? Right? Another example, next slide, would be from King Solomon. Right? And he wanted to praise the importance of the harmony of a loving home. And he says this, Proverbs 15, 17, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened calf with hatred. Right? So you see, Ecclesiastes does exactly the same thing. They're taking one concept and comparing it with another to prove a bigger point to prove the point and make you think like, oh yeah, okay, well, that makes sense, right? So when we get to chapter four, particularly, uh, we get the impression that everything is pointless. Up until this point, Ecclesiastes is telling us, everything is pointless, everything is meaningless, and there seems to be so much trouble in this world, what's the point of carrying on? And then all of a sudden, the tone changes. In verse nine to 12, we see this dialogue and an interesting comparison that values the uh, or puts uh, emphasis on the value of teamwork and so we're going to be looking at this in light of the christian race and god how god has intended for us to not go alone but rather to work in community with others you see the buddy system here that god is uh, suggesting uh, isn't just for school field trips right but it's actually God's plan for uh, our life and our service to him. And one of the things that I really like about this ideal and concept of teamwork is that it's very practical, right? It's something that we can look at and be like, yeah, this is so straightforward. Like this makes 100% sense. Um, and if this isn't convincing, honestly, I really don't know what is, okay? So we're gonna be looking at these four verses and in each of the verses, we're gonna be taking four reasons to why the Bible and God values teamwork over going solo. So uh, the first one uh, we'll read in verse 9. It says, two are better than one because they have good reward 
for their labor. The first reason Ecclesiastes gives us for why two is better than one is because of this ideal of productivity. Okay? What helps kind of put this into perspective is if you look at the verse right before it. Okay? It kind of helps set up this one, but also everything else that we see in the next four verses. Verse 8 says, There is one alone without compassion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, For whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? There also is vanity and a grave misfortune. You see, what Ecclesiastes is doing here is he's painting this picture of a man who has no one to work for or to work uh, with. And there's no end to the labors that he does. There's no purpose. But the ideal that Ecclesiastes now paints in verse 9 is that when two people work together, they can accomplish twice as much as either one could have accomplished alone. Now, to share an example that's kind of sports related, when I was in high school, I played two years of uh, JV tennis, which is junior varsity. I wasn't, uh, I actually chose not to go into varsity. uh, And this is not to kind of uh, puff my wings or anything like that. uh, But it's because I didn't like playing by myself. um, And I wanted to be with my friends. But when I was in high school, I played tennis uh, quite a bit. And one of the things that our coaches would always tell us is that consistency is key. We actually put it on the the edges of our rackets and we would read it to ourselves as we played games just to remind ourselves that consistency is key. But one of the things that they would do uh, in order to achieve this consistency in our tennis playing was they would send us to the wall okay so if you ever play tennis or you're familiar with tennis courts there's usually a green wall that's kind of set up on like kind of the end of the tennis courts Uh, and then you go there and basically you hit the ball against the wall and you can do it all by yourself but if you've ever done that and if you've ever tried to practice on a wall the reality is it's not the same as if you were practicing with another person right there's like top spin and back spin it just doesn't work the ball just gets flat when you hit the wall and it just, it's, it's impossible to actually get better when you're practicing against the wall. Um, but uh, eventually what we would do is, is we would kind of ignore what the coach was saying and then we would just kind of start hitting the ball back and forth to one another on an empty court. And this is how we would learn quicker. We would gain skills uh, that we wouldn't have been able to gain if we had just kept practicing against the wall. So now obviously this isn't, the same example as like labor or what Ecclesiastes is talking about. But another good example that you can think about is gardening. Uh, If there's anyone in this world that loves gardening more than uh, uh, eating is probably my grandpa. Uh, He loves to garden and he loves to just give away everything that he uh, plants. But when it comes to gardening, gardening, you know that it takes hours and hours of work. And um, there's preparation in the soil, getting the seeds, planting them, sprouting them, uh, planting the sprouts, um, building his own greenhouses. He's built a greenhouse that's bigger than his own house. And I just remember every time I would have the chance to go and help him, uh, we would spend hours and hours and hours outside skipping meals and just building uh, his garden and maintaining it. But if he were to do it alone, it would take so much more longer. But as I come and help him, uh, the work gets done much faster, more is accomplished. Uh, So basically, when there's two, there's more reward for the labor that gets put in. So the first point, when there is two, we can be productive in furthering the gospel message. Okay, the next one, verse 10. 
It says, For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. The second reason is because we can give help in times of trouble. There used to be actually this uh, hilarious TV commercial. Um, I don't know if you younger people know it. There might be like memes out there now about this commercial. But I think um, people that lived through the 80s and 90s uh, will definitely remember this. Uh, But it's a commercial uh, that catchphrase kind of caught on in the 80s and 90s. And it just like took off completely. But it was for a commercial called uh, Life Call. Uh, Basically... It was a commercial that advertised uh, a necklace. And uh, it was like a pendant that you would wear on your neck. And if you had fallen, you would press it and it would call 911 uh, for you. Um, And I remember this commercial kind of blew up uh, as I was growing up. Uh, Because it was this old grandmother that had fallen in the bathroom and she was not able to get up. And so she would press the button and she would say, help, I've fallen and I can't get up. Right. And so maybe younger people have seen like memes and stuff like that. Uh, But nowadays uh, uh, we see that there is actually a valuable lesson in, in kind of this commercial and this kind of catchphrase. Sometimes both literally and metaphorically, we can get knocked down by life's trials, troubles, and tribulations. Sometimes we find ourselves down on the ground and we simply can't get back up. If you're alone, we might stay down. But in Ecclesiastes, it points to the fact that we actually are never alone. As brothers and sisters in Christ, something that we are to do for each other as we run this race is we are to lift each other up, to pick each other up, whether that be through words of encouragement, whether that be through prayer, with reminders of the love and the mercy that God has shown to me, to others, right? The list goes on and on. Because you see, Ecclesiastes understood that everyone, and I mean everyone, needs help. And it's truly a blessing to both give and to receive help. You see, when there is two, we can help one another in times of trouble. The next one, uh, verse 11, it says again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? You see, the third reason is because we can keep each other warm. Now, you might be thinking, huh, pastor, that's interesting. Like, that's kind of weird. Like, Lay down together? Is it implying that we all need to get married? Uh, Or maybe that's just my assumption. Maybe you guys aren't thinking that way. Uh, But we would think, obviously, that to lay down with one another is kind of a weird thing. Like, I wouldn't go lay down with my sister. I wouldn't go lay down with my brother. Like, that's not kind of something that I would naturally want to do. But let's try to understand the context in which Ecclesiastes is trying to uh, lay out his point. Okay? So let's imagine that somebody is traveling through the wilderness. Even if it's a place not like, like not the Arctic, but even if it's just like the desert, it can get cold at night, right? And if somebody journey, taking a journey through the desert or the Arctic or wherever it is goes alone, there's a possibility that they could get frostbite, uh, hypothermia, um, or even to the point of freezing to death. Uh, let me share an example with you. Back in Alaska, uh, my father and I used to go to the, the conference's uh, men's retreat. And the men's retreat would uh, happen, you know, annually in the summer, towards the late summer. And it would be at, uh, an abandoned gold mine 
um, that one of the members of the conference kind of owned, uh, and it would be out there. And it was really far, uh, six hours by car, and then another like hour or two on four-wheeler, ATV. Um, you could fly in if you wanted to, but you had to have a lot of money to do that. Uh, and they would fly these little Cessna, like bush planes, really tiny, you know, like four-seater kind of planes. Um, but I remember every summer for a good, uh, you know, three or four years, my father and I would go. Now, I still get traumatized thinking about these and I have nightmares because it was absolutely terrifying because you would be going through mountains, you would be going through these valleys, you would be going through rivers that were four or five feet tall or deep, right? And, you know, there was a time where I was going through on a four-wheeler and it ate up too much water and it died and I just started floating in this river and I thought that was it for me, right? Okay, but... Um, for a good three, four years, uh, we would go. And I remember that at night, it would always get very cold. And I remember the very first year that I went with my dad, uh, my dad had purchased a really small, like, two-person tent that wasn't made for people that were taller than, like, five foot ten. Like, it was, like, really small, and, like, we barely fit. We couldn't even, like, really stretch out. Um, and it was really crowded. I remember sleeping in that tent with my dad. There was, like, no, like, clearance. Like, you couldn't really sit up or anything. You could, like, you literally had to, like, jump in, like, laying down. Uh, that's how small it was. Maybe it was a one-person tent for all I know. Uh, but I remember that we would lay down together, even though it was freezing cold outside, um, it was really warm in the tent, right? When we were together, shoulder to shoulder, keeping warm, the tent was warm, if not hot. Uh, but for me as a sleeper, I usually kick, I usually move around quite a bit. And so my father kind of gave up and he left uh, in the early morning and he just kind of woke up at like three, four in the morning and just left the tent. Uh, but I found myself alone in that tent. And as I found myself alone in the tent, I started to get very cold and it ultimately woke me up an hour later. So, um, there's a huge difference when you are alone by yourself trying to keep warm and then when you're with somebody trying to keep warm. You see, this isn't just travel advice from Ecclesiastes, right? It's wisdom for us on the Christian race that we are all on, okay? There is a spiritual warmth in going through life together. It's easy to grow cold in the Christian walk to be numb to what God is doing in our lives. And eventually, it could lead us to freezing to death spiritually. You see, when we grow cold, the heat of those running the race beside us is what keeps us warm, is what motivates us and challenges us to rekindle the fire in our hearts, whether that be through prayer, whether that be through sharing a Bible verse that we've memorized, or a reminder to people to turn to God, these small things can be the sparks that God uses to keep that fire going, to keep us warm as we run this spiritual race. So when there is two, we can keep spiritually warm. And the final one, uh, verse 12, it says, Though one may be overpowered by one another, uh, two are there may be, or sorry, there, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and threefold cord uh, is not quickly broken. The final reasoning is very interesting, okay? When we are a team, there is protection. There is safety in numbers. But why do we need protection? Why do we need safety? You, you see, we face spiritual dangers every day. This world we live in, 
as we run our Christian race, is filled with temptations. The desires of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says that Satan is always prowling around like a lion waiting to devour us. So when it comes to facing these spiritual dangers, two is better than one. When we run the race with others around us, there is always someone that will stand up for you, that will run with you in this fight and protect us and watch over us. In other words, this is why we are to be our brother's keepers, our sister's keepers, right? We are to be accountable to one another. Galatians 6 verse 2 says, to bear one another's burdens so, and so fulfill the law of Christ. When there is two, we can protect one another. Now, throughout the Bible, you see that the children of God were never intended or designed to be alone. We are always to be with the help and support of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Even Jesus, when sending out his disciples, he sends them out two by two. But one thing Ecclesiastes does, which I think is very interesting, and something actually yesterday uh, Nathan pointed out as he was Um, as we were kind of analyzing this uh, passage. But he noticed that Ecclesiastes does something very quick. He does quick math, and he turns two into three, right? It says uh, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's how he ends it, right? This whole time, his argument has been saying that two is better than one. But at the very end, he says, well, three is better than two. By adding this last part, Ecclesiastes is challenging us and reminding us that when there's three, we are unbreakable. And I believe that in the most challenging and difficult parts of our Christian race, when we can find a community of three, it is more powerful and more effective than two. And I think this is especially true if we make that third person Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is the third person, our best friend, the greatest partner we could ever have, if we can allow Jesus Christ to be that third person, then truly we are a a cord that is not quickly broken. You see, we find the greatest reward when we learn to make partnership with Him, when we rely on His love and His mercy and His grace to help us with every difficult trial and task that we may run into. When our hearts are cold, when Jesus wraps us in his arms of love to warm us up once again, when we fall down and Jesus is there to pick us up, reminding us that he died on the cross for you and I. And when we find ourselves in danger, fighting against Satan and the principalities of this world, we find Jesus, our best friend, defending us and rescuing us. You see, church, we need to remember that our race is ran individually. No one can run your race for you. You have to choose to run your race. But we have to remember that as we all choose to run this race individually, that there are people around us, others that are running the race alongside with you. And as we run together our individual races, we must remember that in doing so, We can further the gospel message better and we can help one another in our times of trouble. 
We can spiritually keep each other warm. And we can protect one another from the temptations of this world. Church, I pray that as we conclude this series today, that as we all remind ourselves of the race that we are running, that we not forget the prize, not forget the imperishable crown that awaits. And as we continue to look forward to that, as we lay aside all the weights that are around us, as we run side by side with those that we love, that those that are running their race to achieve that imperishable crown. I pray that we, church, can take the time to remind ourselves of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for us. And as we remind ourselves of this, I pray that that be the motivation and the encouragement to continue to push forward in this long, treacherous, very challenging race that is set before us. Church, this is my prayer, that we can continue to faithfully run this Christian race. Let's pray. Let's pray.